Welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a podcast about the humanities and interdisciplinarity, produced by the Cohen Center for the Humanities at James Madison University. Hello and welcome to Conversations at the Cohen Center. I'm Morgan, and today I am joined by Dr. LaChapelle, Professor of History at Nevada State College. Thank you for being here today, Dr. LaChapelle. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to start us off a little bit, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, and and what your areas of study are? So I am, uh, as you mentioned, a professor of history at Nevada State College. I've been there for more than 10 years. Um, Interestingly enough, I came into this, uh, my my first position actually was teaching mass communications. I was assistant professor of mass communications back east at a women's college in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a long story, but I, you know, I, I got interested in how media helps us shape our identity, how it shapes our politics, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, part of that, I suppose some of that is my own uh, upbringing. I grew up in a, a small town in Arizona, a mining town, actually. And so back in the 70s, <laughs> uh, you know, in 80s, when I was growing up, radio was very important. Um, as a as a local news source, right? As a way to know what's going on, and then also as a connection to the world. And um, so, you know, one obviously in rural parts of the country, this and in the South and in parts of the West, and you know, even uh, you know, but certainly in Virginia, you know, the Northeast Pennsylvania, country music is an important part of the conversation people are having. So. Um, you know, I got interested in that. And I, I actually interesting. I, I, I uh, got my undergrad undergraduate degree at the University of Arizona and uh, specialized in history and journalism, was always interested in interviewing people and learning more kind of what you do here. And um, went out and got my first job was at the uh, newspaper in uh, Bakersfield, California, which is kind of known as a endpoint of the Dust Bowl migration, the the Tom Jodes, you know, out of Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath. And, um, you know, I ended up writing a, a master's thesis while I was there and then went on to USC and got my PhD. And um, I really kind of I, I had a professor who taught film history, obviously, at USC. And we, we talked a lot about these ideas about how media shapes us and how, you know, we can sh- possibly, there's a possibility of shaping the media, but it's, it's just that more, that, that uh, other direction that shapes us. And I got interested in writing a little bit about country music history and, um, and that sort of thing. So that was, and that was ended up being my dissertation in my first book, which looked at the Dust Bowl migrants and how they use music to create, a sense of identity and a politics. And I looked at folks from Woody Guthrie, very left-wing folk singer of the 1930s. Um, and I moved forward kind of chronologically to look at the 70s and 80s and, and the rise of people like Merle Haggard, who was who's still considered probably one of the best songwriters in the country music business today, even though, I mean, he passed away a few years ago. But he... Um, you know, uh, some people would argue he articulated kind of a more conservative identity than than Woody Guthrie anyways. And so I tried to kind of like tackle that a little bit. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. So you're talking about um, country music and its relationship to history and specifically even political histories. Um, and so is that your primary area of study um, even now? Is that just where you started? Have you moved um, in a different direction since then? Well, so when, when I was looking at the Dust Bowl migrants and the music, um, I was more interested in cultural identity and, you know, in California, the, the slur was they were the Okies because a lot of them were from Oklahoma, even though there were people from Arkansas and Texas and other kind of Southern Plains states. Um, and I was interested in how they reacted to the hostility that they were facing as, as sort of internal immigrants, because there was a surprising amount for that time period for a group of mostly white Protestants. So there were a lot of Native Americans and there were African-American migrants as well. Um, they faced a lot of hostility. And so, you know, interesting. So it really kind of came out of that conversation. But the problem is when I was writing it, we kept stumbling into these political issues. <laughs> you know, Woody Guthrie was upset about, you know, the way that the Los Angeles Police Department was trying to stop people at the border between California and Arizona and wrote songs about it, for instance, and talked about the kind of nativist identity that a lot of Californians had <laughs> and their their hostility towards these migrants. And so the political kept coming up again and again. And as I went through that, I said, well, I kept asking myself, well, who's written a book really just about the connection between politics and um, and music and country music in particular. And, you know, there's little tidbits here and there, but no one's really wrote it. So my second book ended up being the book I wish someone else had written <laughs> so that I could have written my first book, which is probably not an unusual. I think that sometimes we, we come to these, we realize once we get into a subject, we start to see where uh, the holes are and where, you know, more research needs to do be done so and that's kind of what you know my current the book that just re released about a was a year and a half and or two years ago um i fight the world right which looks at country uh, directly at country music and politics and the the focus shifts much more to the south than california and the west although there is there are a few figures like the one really left-wing figure that comes out in my research um, is a senator from Idaho, Glenn Taylor, who probably at the time was the most left-wing. He was the Bernie Sanders of the political spectrum in the 1940s. And he ends up actually even running as a vice presidential candidate in 1948 on the third party progressive ticket, which was they thought that the New Deal Democrats and Truman were too far to the right. So they ran much farther to the left. <laughs> so there's interesting kind of and he started out as, as a singing cowboy on local radio and kind of built his following that way. Yeah, and talking about all of these these figures and um, these representations in country music uh, sort of brings me to ask the question of how easily do the two subjects of history and um, music in general, country music specifically, how easily do those work together? Um, surprisingly, quite well. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, in, in the field. So there is a whole field of scholars, believe it or not, who focus on country music. And there's an uh, an annual conference at Belmont University uh, near Nashville uh, every year, the International uh, Country Music Conference, it's called. And it's been going on for, I think, almost 30 years. It's a long time. If you go back, you can look at their proceedings. <laughs> so there's a lot of people that have done the connection between 
the politics and the music, but um, you know what? I, what and one of my complaints was we, a lot of that has been cultural politics. So you know, I don't know how many papers, if you looked at the proceedings, would have been about the Dixie Chicks over the years, or you know, especially back in 10, 15, 20 years ago, Toby Keith, or you know, and then sort of the left-right liberal conservative conflict within the genre, and, and certainly the Dixie Chicks, you know, that the uh, sort of the epitome of that. <laughs> in some ways, or that situation in 2003. Um, but the problem I kept running into was that, uh, you know, I knew of, as I kind of surveyed the scene, that there were so many performers that actually run for office. And there was also, so they had, there was a politics going way, way back, including, you know, people who really were at the beginnings of the genre becoming a, a national phenomenon, I would say, by the 40s and 50s, like Roy Acuff, probably the most popular, you know, country music performer of his era, who ended up running twice for governor of Tennessee, right? And he didn't win, but there's an interesting story there, right? And I knew about, obviously, a lot of people who talk about uh, the kind of, the way that the South um, and, and sort of this, you know, white conservative um, uh, political community sort of, you know, rallied around by the late 60s, uh, George Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama, who had, you know, was kind of came forward as kind of the uh, spearhead or a lightning point for, uh, you know, uh, opposing desegregation and those sorts of things. And um, he had used country music bands constantly throughout his political career. And, and so there's this long history. And then I, you know, I, and I, so that I knew these things and I knew they were important. And obviously the country music connection with Wallace, a lot, a few people have written about it, but it's really, really important in understanding both the genre and uh, Southern politics to some degree, and um, especially right-wing politics, you know, and, and, and Wallace was a Democrat, but some people argue that he opened up the kind of populist messages uh, through his use of both the music and the metaphors of the ways he spoke uh, that eventually the Republicans in the South jumped onto and kind of took forward. So, um, you know, you have just a lot of important things going on. And I thought, well, I need to go back and figure out where this started and then, you know, try to make sense out of it. And that's kind of what I did. And it started a lot earlier than I thought. Um, the, you know, I, I find uh, fiddler candidates. So fiddle, a lot of the earliest polit politicians who use the music sort of to either gather a crowd or, or get people out or get them to stick around <laughs> to meet with them, right? Because those personal relationships were very important in late 19th century, um, you know, uh, political campaigning. Uh, he, you know, you had figures like um, Tom Watson, and uh, the, the Taylor brothers, uh, who both eventually were governors of Tennessee, who were fiddlers, who used that image and used actually the music while they were campaigning. Um, and it goes way back. And they were very cognizant of the idea that this image as a fiddler and they weren't we didn't quite use the terminology country music back then but that this that this that whatever was kind of coalescing around this style of music 
was going to be important for their identity and their politics and the way that they could approach politics. And so, you know, I kind of traced that, those early campaigns from the 1870s all the way up to about the mid-1970s or early 80s, kind of that that sort of, and actually what I'm working on now is kind of, I'm trying to take that all up to the present and go from, and talk about, I need to write about the Dixie Chicks and all that stuff as well. Well, it seems like you really have um, a passion for uh, delving into this material. And so I'm wondering, what what classes do you typically teach? Are you able to teach this type of material, this type of um, looking at country music, looking at music in general, even um, through this historical lens, are you able to teach that in classes? Um, and yeah, what kind of classes do you typically teach? So, you know, I'm, I, I teach in a department where my primary responsibility is U.S. history. And so, you know, I do teach some surveys, but I, I and I've been very lucky that we are a new, fairly new institution. And, and I've, I've, been, I've had a really a, a strong hand in shaping curriculum and that sort of thing. And I do actually I teach a topics class periodically that's actually centered around the uh, Coen Brothers uh, film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which has just recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. And and really, are you originally I, I called this something like, you know, the, the culture, music and politics of the South or something like that. But I thought, you know, all of that comes together in this film. And then when the students watch the film for a while, I had the students had already knew what it was. But <laughs> now it's getting to where they have to be introduced to the Coen Brothers film because they don't know it. And, and once they watch it, they love it because it's, it's funny and there's a lot of, you know, zany stuff. There's also a lot of history and interest interesting questions that are raised by the film, not always answered, um, that is perfect for um, teaching. So I actually taught, I, in that class, a lot of this material on country music and politics comes out. We also those study the history of barbecue. And uh, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I, we there's a lot of, we try to, we connect things to the film. Oh, the issue of classicism in kind of elite Southern society, which kind of comes out in the film with just the whole Homer theme, you know, which is, it's sort of loosely based on Odysseus. And um, we, uh, you know, so we, we, we probe into that and we look at the architecture and we look at uh, happenings in literature and the arts and how, for instance, Nashville wanted to position itself as the Athens of the South and why that was, right? And and how that, and then interestingly enough, I don't know if the Coen brothers knew this history, but it fits so nicely with the way that they kind of crafted the film. And so they must have known some of, some of it, at least. And they certainly, Papio Daniel, one of the major figures in the film, is really important. Um, I also teach, I teach history of popular culture a lot. I'm doing that right now. So a lot of themes of music and we'll run across them. I blend a little focus on film and literature and pulp magazines and dime novels and, and all that sort of thing. So um, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think students really hunger for this. They want to know about our past and, you know, and it's surprising because I, I, you would think today's students would not be interested in history of vaudeville, for instance, or something like that. And they ask such great questions about it. You know, when, when I teach those sections and we read about it and honestly, sometimes I can't always answer all of them because they're so well thought out and we just don't have the research yet to really answer all of their questions. Yeah. And I, I actually um, have a question that I know I said, I don't improvise often, but this is a little bit of an improvised question. Um, as someone who did not 
get a ton of access to history in college simply because of, of my major. Um, I'm interested in how you even go about exploring history through um, music, but even through media. You mentioned um, one of your original um, experiences with this idea of even country music and history was with a um, film, I believe. And so I'm just wondering um, how you even begin to go about researching or uh, looking at these ideas through media, through music. Um. So, yeah, in terms of, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, this, this is kind of fu a fundamental question that, that goes back to my own time as a student and as a graduate student. Um, you know, a big question is what we always asked, you know, obviously in, in history, historically speaking, the politics has always been a very central focus. You know, we, we, we try to cut apart parts of American history, we divide it up by political framework, like here's the Jacksonian era, and here's, you know, we can connect the Gilded Age to the rise of the robber barons and populism. And it's always often political, sometimes economic movements that, that help us define that. Um, but the problem, and, and this is where I think cultural history, the history of music, the history of media comes in, is it helps us really answer those questions of, okay, let's say politics are important. I mean, we could take start with that, as a, and I, I wouldn't argue with that point. Um, what then motivates, how do people get their ideas about politics? Where is it coming from? Is it partly, you know, to what extent does fiction uh, play a role. And we can think of populism and you think of the novels of Harvey Coyne and people were reading these and he was a populist and he was promoting populist ideals. And um, it's hard to totally divorce that. Right. And so we get into movies, it, it almost becomes even more powerful. Right. We get in the eras of era of radio and, and the early cinema. Um, we see that media is kind of shaping the way people, at least even the questions maybe that they're asking about the world or the way the political system works or that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's kind of what I try to stress. And in a weird way, I think that in, in history, we've moved a lot towards cultural history. A lot of us have. There's still plenty of people doing political history. And there, yes, there is a small number of those presidential historians that are on TV all the time. Um, but... What I've found, uh, the problem with that, I think, is sometimes then we get so far divorced from the lives of real people when we, we delve too far into cultural history or intellectual, which are, I'm not saying they're very important. So bringing it back to the political questions for me is really, is to me something I think that's, we need to be doing. And so, you know, maybe I, I'm like a reconstructed political historian, even though I didn't intend to start out that way. <laughs> that's sort of where I've ended up because I realized that I think that, you know, questions going on in the genre in the, let's just say country music the genre of country music today there has been the last 10 years just and, and even up to really recent just scandal after scandal in terms of there you know there was um oh maybe five or seven years ago there there was a big scandal it's still kind of going on about sexual harassment in the country radio industry which was particularly bad and a journalist uh, marissa moss um, who actually I'm going to bring her to talk to my students. Um, uh, she 
interviewed something like 30 women who had kind of experienced these horrible things in the in the radio industry and including you know some big name performers i mean some of them weren't but um you wouldn't expect this sort of thing to happen and then we had that and then we had uh, what they call tomato gate which was a scandal where basically i mean it's it's well known and there are people who do research on this on this sort of thing but you know country radio tends to play few women few and far between. Right? And so one programmer finally, like was honest about it. I don't think he meant to be but talked about he was advising other PDs, uh, programming directors to play women like like if you vision uh, country radio as a salad. So women are the tomatoes. So they're just interspersed you know, very lightly with among all the lettuce, which is all the men <laughs> sort of thing. And, you know, and that was a big scandal. And then we had we had kind of a number of issues around race, obviously, Little Nas X and, you know, his mega hit, which was kind of thrown off the billboard charts because of internal pressure and, and stuff in the industry. And there was a, you know, he was uh, taken up by Wrangler jeans, which has long been kind of associated with country and rodeo culture. And there was a big push to get, you know, push him off as a spokesperson. <laughs> and so you have all that, right? And then you've certainly got the issue of, um, you know, uh, more recently Morgan Wallen using the N-word. And, and he was, you know, again, the sort of number one artist. So all of this stuff, it's like, there's this interesting combination of gender politics and racial politics and and a kind of um you know i would say like a, a hesitancy to move forward with thinking on all these things and just the fact that you know now there, there's this thing called the black opry um which is pushing up against the regular opry and against just the whole industry in nashville for for long for very long sort of keeping black artists out of the field of country music, even though if you really go back to the beginnings of the genre, um, you know, I looked at newspaper articles from the 1870s, 1880s, there's all these fiddling contests. And a lot of times back then the newspaper said this person, you know, they use the word, it was a Negro, right? They would identify that person. So you knew <laughs> that some of the winners, many of the folks involved in these contests were, were African-American and, you know, over and over again, there's this connection. We know the, the banjo came over from West Africa, for instance, and, and there's all these connections and the genre just doesn't want the people who, the forces, not the whole genre, but the, the people in power, there's a hesitancy to take any of that on and really address it. You know, actually, I was thinking one of my one of my questions that I have here is also just how does your work and, and you sort of started talking about it. I don't know if you have anything else that you'd like to add, but how does this work? How does your work translate and, and add to these larger conversations about race that we are, we are having now that we've been having for the, you know, the last couple of decades. Well, I think that, and you know, here's the thing, like I can be very negative. Here's the thing. I love country music. I love a lot of things about Southern culture. I like going to Nashville. I've been there many times. I like the restaurants. I like, so it's not about being negative, but it's being, it's having a kind of a historical critique. It's having a, it's being a little, asking people to go a little step further and saying, what is it, you know, what, what is happening right now? What are the historical forces behind that? You know, how do we, um, 
address that and how do we maybe move forward right from where where we are so you know that's kind of when i when i think about um you know the current situation i think that's what your question was was the current situation right so you know when i think about the current situation i think wow you know there's in some ways there's some really cool things happening you know you've got like some you got at least two male um uh performers who who are doing pretty well and getting uh, african-american performers who are getting radio play you have uh mickey guyton uh, african-american woman who is at least she's you know she's being featured on the grammys which is the non-country it's non-specific genre specific music award you know <laughs> organization but the, on the country music it's, it's harder now she did play i think the acm about a year ago but she hasn't been nominated for major awards within the two organ the two major organizations that, that give out awards and that and so she's struggling still she's still kind of struggling to get radio play even though she just did this the national anthem at the super bowl right and so there are these like current day injustices in some ways that have long historical roots and you know i and so that's something like my, my current work i'm kind of trying to connect some of that together and i i you know uh, historian that i am i you know I've, I've said well let's go back to the 1920s and i'm looking at uh, one of these uh, governors of tennessee who was a fiddler uh alf taylor they used to call him uncle alf taylor and i did some research i didn't really realize the extent until i got into the sources but you know he was governor in 1920 and in tennessee back then it was like a two-year term really short so you were like a perennial candidate <laughs> constantly running for office and um he uh you know i knew that he used a lot of the music the fiddling him and his brother who was who had been governor earlier about 20 years earlier used the fiddling in their campaigns and things like that and, but usually when you hear when you read the historical descriptions of him they'll talk about it as vaudeville right well i looked at what he was actually performing on stage and one of his hit songs so to speak the one that the audience reacted to was a fiddle uh, reel that he had patterned after he he claimed one of his uh, family's uh, servants and his family did have slaves going back i'm not sure at the, at the time of his youth if it if they were if slavery was still there <laughs> but i'm trying to think i think they were servants actually but he he patterned it after this uh, person and uh, he called it the n-words dream and he he did a number of acts and when you read the newspaper descriptions of his campaigning and his he would call them lectures but they were really more kind of musical performances interspersed with a little bit of politics and a little philosophy um he was constantly sort of you know mimicking african-americans who worked for his family and um so it really was i would not say it was a vaudeville show it was a minstrel show and you know i think that if we kind of understand that early period and he was a force in what was becoming recorded at the time in the 20s recorded 
um, they used to call it old old time music or, you know, eventually called it hillbilly music, right? Um, he was really a force kind of behind that. He even went to New York and recorded a couple of re recordings, including the N-Words Dream, although they never released it. Um, and but also just kind of, not even so much in the number of records he sold because i don't think he sold a ton i think it was just that here's a politician who approves of this genre that's kind of emerging here you know uh we this is kind of important right and you can look at i mean even in the 40s a lot of the elite in nashville surprisingly enough hated the hillbilly image hated the country music and yeah he here he was doing it but he was borrowing from a lot of racist kind of performance tradition in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think um, even just moving from sort of that discovery and also this idea that it's a lot more embedded than even um, history necessarily wants us to believe um, the way it's recorded. Um, is there something that you want people to take away from your work, something specific that um, you found that you want, you know, obviously I'm sure everything you found, you want more people to know about. I think that's why we write books and um, we publish our work, but is there something that you really want people to take away from your work? I think that is that, well, you know, this is a probably become almost a, a trite colloquialism among historians that, um, you know, that history is always more complicated than we think it is. <laughs> and I think, you know, what I, what I point out in this is, yeah, there was all this racism and really horrible stuff and, and it was used in this way, but there were always sort of counter examples that I would come across. And so I think that, you know, the first lesson is things can be changed. Number one, number two um, is not inevitable. There were always people who, who used even this genre um, in a much more forward thinking sort of way, right? And um, so for me, it's actually, even though there's a lot of like depressing stuff sometimes, there's like a sense of hopefulness in all of it. And that's what I think, you know, and so I think if we can point out, and even, even within in some of these individuals, we see contradictions, you know? So if we learn the, the biographical stories of some of these performer politicians, we see contradictions. I mean, one of the things that is crazy is if you know, oh brother, we're out there, where, where art thou, sorry. Um, the Pappy O'Daniel figure, which is in there, he's the governor of Mississippi, but in real life, he was the governor in um, Texas. And one of the things he ran on, on this kind of populist, you know, uh, uh, ticket. And in the film, they borrow actually from another, another, uh, performer politician, uh, another governor of Alabama. Uh, they kind of borrow the, the mop and the broom as cleaning and, and working for reform. Right. Um, that was actually big Jim Folsom who actually was a very quite liberal, um, figure who was originally kind of someone that George Wallace looked up to even though Wallace went a totally 180 direction with you know, different direction, especially on race issues. Um, but with Pappy O'Daniel, believe it or not, in Texas in the 30s and, and, and 40s, a very popular governor. He eventually gets elected senator. Now, was he effective? I don't know. <laughs> but one of the things he ran on in his first race in 1938 was abolition of the death penalty in 1938 in Texas. 
Um, and of course he didn't achieve that. <laughs> and I think that promise was kind of like very conveniently dropped near the, the quarter end of his campaign. Um, but, you know, he stopped emphasizing it. But it's still fascinating that that was a possibility in 1938 in Texas, where today it almost seems like, you know, something that is wholly impossible. Right. So, you know, I think that's the lesson is that we can change things and there are opportunities and and even, you know, and I think that, you know, and I and I also think that exploring more of the African-American roots of the genre, which are just so strong in so many different directions, um, can give, allow people to really understand, you know, that what we see as a white genre today didn't start out that way, wasn't always that way, hasn't ever really been that way. You know, there's great things like, you know, if you look at um, the uh, early, Jimmy Rogers was really pop, probably the most popular uh, recording artist in, in country music, hillbilly music in the 1920s, right? Up to the thirties. And, uh, you know, one of the people playing uh, trumpet on one of his songs is Louis Armstrong, right? Of course, the recording companies didn't advertise that fact, but it's well known among people who study this stuff that, that, that there was always this thing. And, and of course, when you're on, a rec recording, no one sees your face. So we don't know the race of anyone. <laughs> and we, we have to take the recording company's records. Uh, we have to sort of suspend belief that they're telling us ac accurately who was actually involved, right? And, or if they put it on, you know, the, uh, the inset of the, 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 the record, um, we assume that they're telling us, and sometimes they just don't, right? They just say with, you know, horn accompaniment or something like that right so um you know this has always been there and i think it, it, it you know that i i find that like exciting to kind of like explode those myths but also sort of get students and and the public more interested in this history and how complex it is. speaking of getting students and the public interested you are coming uh to speak at jmu um in march and so i was wondering if maybe you wanted to give us a sneak peek of that conversation what are you planning on exploring even tentatively um in your conversation well, I'm definitely going to uh, kind of hit on the issue of um, race and country music and its connection with politics. So the kind of my three big categories, music, politics and race coming together. Um, and, you know, I think what I want to do I, and one of the things I'm kind of planning to do is go a little more deeper into that the, the the details about Elf Taylor in the 20s that I mentioned, um, but then connect that to more present day concerns. And so, you know, I'm hoping it's kind of an opportunity to, uh, you know, really kind of enlighten folks on that. And, and I do kind of want to spend a little time talking about the African-American roots of the genre and some of the early performers um, who, you know, who, well, who were African-American, um, but also kind of the, in the way, oh, the string bands. I mean, there's, there's so many connections here um, that, you know, a lot of people don't realize when they kind of think about this category of country music. 
Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, talking with me today. Before we end, I just want to give you the opportunity. Is there any um, any academic or creative work of yours that you want to promote? Any work that you think um, people who are interested in this subject should um, check out? Um, just anything, basically, that you'd like to promote that you think. Oh, OK. Um, um, yeah. Well, I'll promote my book, <laughs> um, which is, you know, um, I, I'd fight the world, a political history of, of old time hillbilly and country music. The editors may be, I was just going to call it country music, but they said, well, with your, the time frames that you're dealing with, I want you to be like, uh, you know, be as specific as you can. So old time hillbilly and country music, which are the three major sort of very prevalent terms that people have used to title the genre over the last hundred years. And, um, so that, you know, that's available in on time online retailers and, you know, just about anywhere that books are sold. Um, the, um, what else would I like to promote? I think I, I, I am just really excited about a lot of the journalism that's coming out of Nashville. And so, um, there is a writer by the name of Andrea White who writes about African-American issues and, um, I think she's spectacular and she's done some really kind of important work on that. Um, I mentioned Marissa Moss. I think she excellent, you know, and she actually has a book coming out on uh, uh, gender and country, women in country music in particular. Um, she's really, and so I, you know, I really, it's interesting. Like I'm excited to see the, what folks like them are writing about. And I feel like they are, you know, sometimes they argue that journalism is the first draft of history, that they are kind of, you know, informing us about major issues and cleavages within the industry in terms of changes, things, how things are, are, are transforming um, in ways that, um, you know, it, us historians are going to have to catch up to. But that's great. And I don't and here, honestly, I'm not sure it was always that way. I don't think Nashville journalism was of in the past of not to put anyone down. But I, I think that there is some really exciting stuff going on. And so, you know, look for their bylines. I know they've written for uh, Rolling Stone, a um, number of other publications, Nashville publications, those sorts of things. But, you know, um, and there are, and then by the way, I'm mentioning two people, but there's a whole bunch of them. So <laughs> take a look out there and see what the writing is and pay attention to the bylines. I mean, I think that's important. You see, you start to see that some of these writers seem to really know what's going on and they're able to really show you. And I, I do feel like right now, if you're interested at all in country music, there's so much going on and there's a potential. I think we really are at kind of a watershed moment where there's potential for major changes to happen. And I think journalism is a big part of that. So support the journalists. Well, thank you so much again for um, talking with me today. Um, and uh, everyone, if you're interested in hearing more from Dr. LaChapelle, he will be joining us in March. Um, so thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, this is Conversations at the Cohen Center. Uh, join us next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center. Make sure to follow us at Instagram and Twitter at JMU Cohen Center. And be on the lookout for more conversations at the Cohen Center.